Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. The relationship between Mossad and CIA is a very important one, and there's no doubt in my mind that both countries are safer as a result of that relationship. People from, let's say, those kind of organizations got the same DNA. It's important for Israel, but it's important for the United States as well. There's a view among some here in the United States that the current regime in Iran is not capable of changing. I think that if we're going to see a revolution that will come from inside Iran, then United States can assist. But think that we can change it uh, sitting in Tel Aviv, Washington and Paris. It's a dream. You're involved in several Israeli firms, and you started your own cybersecurity company. How do you see the threat? Do you see it getting better? Uh, do you see it getting worse over time? I believe it's the biggest threat that all our planet is dealing with these days. You can compare it to a nuclear uh, threat. And uh, I think that uh, there is a misunderstanding of that threat. So you're going to find it within states. You're going to find it uh, within criminal gangs. So it's everywhere. And there is a vision that maybe, let's say, here in the States, that uh, Washington uh, will solve the problem. That's stupid way of thinking. Tamir Pardo is the former director of the Mossad, the National Intelligence Agency of Israel, and one of the key entities in the Israeli intelligence community. He joined the Mossad in 1979 and served through all levels of command before serving as director from 2011 to 2016. After leaving the Mossad, Tamir became one of the founders and the president of XM Cyber, a cybersecurity company using a unique and fully automated breach and attack simulation platform to protect networks. I just had an opportunity to sit down with Tamir to discuss his career, the national security threats facing Israel, and the current state of cybersecurity. 
We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Tamir, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to start by asking you, Tamir, a few questions about growing up in Israel and about your career. You were born in 1953, only a handful of years after Israel became a state. So in a sense, you and Israel grew up together. And I'm just wondering what the conversations might have been like around your dinner table with your family about your new country and your responsibilities to it? Well, my mom, uh, she was a Holocaust survivor. And she was the only survivor for all family. Her mom, dad, and brother were lost in the Holocaust. So it has an impact on one hand. Sure. But we never talked about it at home. I guess uh, after many years when we uh, uh, were sitting around the table, uh, she mentioned that uh, she never wanted to uh, raise that case in front of the children uh, because uh, now we are an independent country and the problem that caused the Holocaust vanished. So now we have to concentrate how uh, to keep our country independent, a democratic country independence. So, Tamir, you were a young teenager during the 1967 war. What do you, what do you remember about that? What, what, what kind of impact did it have on you? I remember um, I was during that time of the eighth grade in uh, primary school in Israel during those days. and uh, This was the massive I, Arab attack on Israel. Yeah. From it was sides. a fear. Fear around the streets. I remember as kids uh, that we uh, uh, they sent us to the roof of the houses in Tel Aviv to watch if uh, uh, Egyptian or Syrian airplanes are arriving and to give an alert. Um, and then it ended in six days. And uh, for us Israelis, it was a kind of a miracle. Because to a, a war in three fronts at the same time, small and tiny country, uh, less than uh, uh, 20 years old as a state, and uh, with understanding, uh, with all the propaganda from the Arab countries, that uh, their mission uh, is not uh, to gain some square miles uh, from our country, but to kick us out of the Middle East. So the end of uh, uh, this war was uh, really promising from all the citizens of Israel in those days. Tamir, you uh, joined the Israeli military in 1971 as part of your country's required national service. And most people don't know this. In fact, I bet you most of my listeners don't know this, but there's actually a congressional commission here currently operating 
It's looking at the question of whether the United States should have some form of national service. And I wonder if you were asked to talk to them, what would you tell them about national service and its importance? On one hand, there, there is a great advantage for a national service because uh, um, a compulsory service brings all the society, all the kids that are 18 years old on uh, to the service. I believe that you are getting a better armed forces uh, because uh, it's not that those who um, are um, think that, okay, let's postpone college and let's go uh, join the armed forces. You don't have any other option. So you are getting the elite kids, you're getting the best kids in the in the uh, uh, in town uh, to serve together the those who are coming from a different part of the country and uh, not from the Ivy League high schools and it's I think it's better armed forces. And I believe that uh, uh, when you had in uh, your time during the Vietnam War, I think that uh, it uh, um it's not a case that those who cannot do any other things are joining the army. It's uh, everyone's obligation to defend the state. That's on one hand. And uh, today, I think that uh, many, um, uh, when you're joining uh, cyber forces and other forces, uh, it's a great opportunity for young kids mm -hmm. uh, to do things that they're going to take 10 or 15 years to do if they want be part of the, uh, that organization. So those are the advantages. Of course, you're losing time. If you want to do something else, so uh, uh, in three years, uh, uh, you can uh, at least uh, finish college. Tamir, where were you during the 1973 war? So you were in the military, but where were you? What did you do? During that time, I was a surgeon. Um, uh, uh, two years already in the army. And uh, we were, uh, with my company, I was in the Golan Heights, I was in Sinai, I was, uh, we were uh, the troops that were sent to uh, Jabal Ataka, it's uh, nearby uh, Suez, after crossing the Suez Canal. So, um, that was a war. You were in the thick of things. Yeah. So, Tamir, you were also part of the Israeli team that raided the Entebbe airport in Uganda to free Israeli citizens who had been taken hostage by terrorists. You were still a young man at that point. What stands out to you from that day? And looking back on it, what does that, what does that mean to you today? Well, so, I mean, you know, remarkable it was July the 4th, 1976. That's yours. 200th birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Well, as a young person, I was then a lieutenant uh, in the Special Forces. And, uh, you know, as young people, you don't think about, okay, there is a mission. You just act. Uh, and that's all. Okay, you have to do it. You don't think even uh, um, that you have to fly over 10 hours from Israel and during those days, we didn't have uh, satellite capabilities uh, uh, to get some uh, photos from there. Uh, it was a blind mission to a certain extent. Uh, 
Um, and honestly, when uh, we took off from uh, Tel Aviv, I didn't believe that uh, our Prime Minister, uh, late Prime Minister Rabin, uh, will get the green light. One, but when we crossed the PNR, somewhere on the halfway uh, to uh, Uganda, uh, we realized, okay, I will have to do it. And, uh, well, so that's memories. I think it was very important. Yes. I think it's, uh, uh, it's a sh- it was It was not a show, but at the end of the day, uh, it was a message. It was a statement. It was a statement from Israel to the other countries around the world that uh, uh, if you can liberate your hostages, uh, don't start to talk with terrorists, but beat them. Tamir, you then joined Mossad in 1980, the same year that I joined CIA. Oh, really? Yes, yes. So how did you end up there, and why did you end up there? Well, during my service uh, within the uh, Special Forces, we had some, uh, um, let's say, communication with Mossad, uh, some kind of relationship. And... uh, Just like the CIA does with the military, exactly, particularly you know, the special forces. Exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, so uh, then one day I got a letter on a mail, on a mail, open a letter, uh, saying uh, if he want to join something interesting, without mentioning it's Mossad. So uh, uh, that's phone number. Give us a call, and then I went for the first meeting, without knowing it's a Mossad. And from that on school, everything, and then actually started to, uh, my job at, uh, let's say, at the end of uh, 1981. So part of, part of your time at Mossad involved serving as the deputy to the legendary Meyer Dagan, who ran Mossad for almost a decade. What made him so legendary, and what, what did you learn from him? When I started... When I, I joined the Mossad, um, we had our director was um, Hoffi. That he was, uh, before joining the Mossad, he was the commander of the Northern Front of Israel during the '73 uh, war. He changed the Mossad for the first time uh, to a modern kind of organization. He put emphasis on schooling, Uh, he uh, put emphasis on all kind of operations. Then every director since then had his uh, footprint mm. or fingerprint on the Mossad. Um, Mayor Dagan, when he joined the Mossad, for him it was quite new. He appointed me as his deputy from day one when he entered. And uh, he has his own vision. So he was not of Mossad. He was not a Mossad. He came from the armed forces. He retired the, uh, from the IDF and joined the Mossad as a director, directly the director. So he has uh, um, excellent intuition on uh, uh, all kind of Mossad operations. And he has his vision of the role of the Mossad take uh, on the uh, 21st century. And uh, from time to time, uh, I think that uh, bringing someone from uh, outside 
uh, it's uh, interesting because uh, you're getting a uh, different perspective. Better perspective, yeah. I think. And that's what's happened. And uh, he served for eight years in Mossad. And I was his deputy twice. Anything in particular that you learned from him? He was a man with a vision on one hand. He looked as a tough yeah. officer on one hand. I remember, yeah. A really tough one, yeah. you yeah. know, like Prussian, where, where you can say even. And, uh, uh, but on the other hand, a very soft uh, personality. So it was quite interesting combination of a person. And I remember at the very beginning, uh, he, um, he wanted that job very much. But uh, uh, let's say six or seven months after he started being director, I think he was a bit confused because that's not armed forces. And, uh, and uh, it's a different DNA at the end of the day. And, uh, but uh, he fell in love with the organization and you can feel it all these years. You know, when I first met him, I had two reactions. One was I wouldn't want to get in a street fight with this guy. Right. And then the second reaction was I wouldn't want to get into a chess match with this guy either. Right. Right? And it was a very interesting combination, as you said. So, Tamir, I want to ask you a couple questions about your time as director, two years of which you and I worked closely together. And maybe that's the first question I want to ask you is the relationship between Mossad and CIA. Can you talk about that to the extent that you can talk about it? Well, you know, we can't talk about it. <laughs> I think we can talk about the general nature of it, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating, from my point of view, to see that um, people from, let's say, those kind of organization got the same DNA. Okay, you can sit... And after an hour or so, those who grew up in the organization um, have are very similar, and it's easy to talk. You can be and I'm before talking about the relationship between the, the CIA and Israel and the United States. Um, even to speak to um, Arab countries that you don't have any kind of relation when you meet people from your profession, it's so easy. Okay, you can be enemy when you are walking from the room, but when you are sitting together, you can share your experience. You can talk a lot, and uh, you can uh, Why do you deal with many obstacles. Why do you think that is? Because the the job is so unique, same personality type. Why do you think? I mean, I noticed have have noticed exactly the same thing over the years. Why why is that? Why is it so easy? I think that those kind of organizations, when they are looking for people and um, and they are looking for certain qualities, and whether you are serving in the CIA, the MI6, or one of uh, uh, any other country, France, Italy, Saudi Arabia, uh, you need the same people, the same qualities. So it's quite easy when people with the same qualities... Uh, they can fight each other very well, but they can talk and communicate very well as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say this. Maybe you can't say this, but I'll say this. The relationship between Mossad and CIA is a very important one, and there's no doubt in my mind that both countries are safer as a result of that relationship. Due my term, I think that uh, uh, when we work together and afterwards, 
I think the relationship between uh, the Mossad and the CIA was extremely, extremely good. I think that, uh, uh, and, and it's, it's not obvious. The kind of um, relationship is coming from top. It's an order. My understanding that during my service as director, um, the President of the United States gave a direct order. That's for filling because I never heard him talking about it. Uh, it's important for Israel, but it's important for the United States as well. And uh, I think that uh, uh, things that we thought, I thought before being a director, that is a dream if we'll be able to achieve with any kind of organization that we have a relation with, uh, we achieved with the CIA. Things that were beyond, beyond expectation. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Tamir Pardo. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So, Tamir, when you were director, huge focus of your time was on Iran. Tell us how you think about Iran from the perspective of Israel's security. Iran was an allies before the revolution in the 60s and 70s. Ally after, of the United States and an ally of Israel. Ally of Israel. And after the revolution, uh, you became the big Satan and we became the small one. And that's the ideology of the Iranian. And uh, I think that uh, uh, for their own reasons, as a Shia country, a minority within the Muslim world, uh, they thought that um, taking Israel as an example of an enemy, it will serve them. And uh, they started with their nuclear, um, let's say, project. They assisted uh, Hezbollah, and uh, that's Hezbollah this. would not exist without exactly. Hezbollah is Iranian invention. At the end of the day, Hezbollah is uh, uh, let's say they wanted as we are two thousand kilometers from each other, like one thousand mile even more uh, between Israel and Iran. Uh, so uh, their thought was that uh, they might have a border with Israel if they will control Lebanon through the Hezbollah, and that uh, will remain one thousand more than 100 miles from them, but they're going to be on our border. And that, that, that's exactly what happened. That was on the conventional, with the conventional weapon and with the nuclear weapon. And they um, admitted that uh, the reasons for obtaining a nuclear weapon is uh, to threat Israel. So uh, you don't play with nuclear weapon. What, what do you believe Iran's goals are in the region? And do they include the elimination of the state of Israel? 
Look, that's what they are stating, okay? I think that they know that that's an illusion. Maybe it's good for their own propaganda, and may, it might serve us if we want to do a few things, uh, but it's, come on, when, when they are facing reality, they will never be able to do it. It doesn't matter which kind of weapon they're going to hold. And uh, because uh, I believe that uh, we know how to defend ourselves, we showed when we were a very young country, again, uh, 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 let's say, combined forces from all Arab countries. Now we have peace uh, with uh, some of them and quite good relations with others. So uh, I think that uh, maybe for them it's a dream, but it's more an illusion than a dream. Uh, but... Um, They believe, Iran, they are very, very smart people. They had a long history. They believe that they should be part of, let's say, the G10 or the D9 around the world. That they should have significant influence, yeah. particularly in the Middle East. And I think that uh, um, ISIS, uh, at the end of the day, became um, the great opportunity for Iran as uh, no Western country wanted to use, to do what we call boots on the ground, and why ISIS gained, uh, uh, let's say, the majority of Iraq and the majority of Syria, uh, they were those who were ready to fight to kick out ISIS. And it was a green card to be part of the uh, world again, They did it, and now they are standing with their forces uh, around our border, whether it's in Hezbollah in the north or northeast in Syria. So the United States is putting intense pressure on the Iranians at the moment. Pulled out of the nuclear deal, put sanctions back in place. Oil exports are going to zero. They're ending waivers. Do you think that will be enough to bring the Iranians to the negotiating table f for a second time? Or do you think not? How do you think about U.S. policy at the moment and what it's likely to achieve? As Iran wants to, dom to be a dominant power in the Middle East, so there are actually uh, three cases with Iran. One is a nuclear program. The other, uh, their uh, uh, vision that they're going to have a corridor between Tehran and the Mediterranean Sea. And the third thing is uh, um, be dominant in many other countries by supporting uh, minorities like they're doing in Yemen, like they did in uh, South America and certain places in Africa. And uh, I think Iran is a very important country in the region. And I believe they have to, uh, uh, um, they need to be considered as an important country on one hand, but uh, um, we should limit them. And I would have started um, in Lebanon after the, uh, the agreement, whether there are those who think this was a horrible agreement in Israel and the States as well. But it was an agreement. And as any kind of agreement, 
as Dr. Kissinger said once, uh, a good agreement that can last for a long time is this that uh, none of those who negotiated are happy of the outcome. 10 to 0 uh, uh, outcome for negotiation, it means that those who thought that they were beaten will try at the first time to bypass it and to be back on front. So I think that um, dealing with um, the Hezbollah is something that can be done by the United States. It will affect all the dynamic of the region and uh, a place that Iran will take place in the future. And uh, I think that uh, if uh, sanctions like uh, uh, President Trump, when he's dealing with Iran, will do on Lebanon, telling the Lebanese government, uh, you have two choices, or to kick out Hezbollah from Lebanon, or that Hezbollah is going to be part of Lebanese armed forces, because there is no way that going to be a state within a state. Because for us, it's damn dangerous. Because they're getting the advantage of uh, acting like a terrorist group, but it's a terrorist group with more than 130,000 rockets that cover all, every part in Israel. So that's impossible. And I believe that uh, if uh, uh, sanctions on Lebanon are going to work in less than 30 days, we're going to see a difference, uh, a total difference in the Middle East because it's going to affect Syria, it's going to affect Iraq, and it's going to affect a nuclear discussion because we are not dealing with a small country. We are thinking about um, a country half size of Europe uh, with a vision to be an empire at the end of the day. So you would recommend, Tim Mears, let me get to make sure I get this right, you would recommend to the administration to focus on the head of their snake, which is Hezbollah. Exactly. Because when you're dealing with, uh, uh, with Yemen, those who are playing a very, very important role are the Hezbollah. And the Hezbollah are playing a role all around the world when they're dealing with terrorism. Just a couple more questions about Iran, Tamir. One is, there's a view among some here in the United States that the current regime in Iran is not capable of changing and that that regime ultimately needs to be replaced with a new regime that would be capable of changing. How do you think about that question? It's irrelevant. I don't think that we can change the regime. I don't think uh, that the United States can change the regime. I think that if we're going to see a revolution that will come from inside Iran, then the United States can assist. I think we had an opportunity in 2009. It was before the Arab Spring. It, but was, we it, did, it was actually the first moment of the Arab Spring the, in my mind. The yes. Arab Spring started then, yes, in yes, 2009, in the streets of Tehran and, uh, and Shiraz and all other big cities in Isfahan, in Iran, but we didn't understand it at all. Then we had a great chance to assist the opposition there, but we missed it. The moment it will start again, I hope we will not miss it, but think that we can change it uh, sitting in Tel Aviv, Washington, and Paris. It's a dream. Um, Tamir, let me just ask you 
very quickly, just a couple other questions about the region. Jordan. Jordan's a very important country uh, to both of us. How do you think about stability there? Are you worried about that? Well, I count on the king. Uh, I think that uh, it's not the stability of Jordan. It's the stability of all the Middle East. If something, God forbid, going to happen in Jordan, it's going to be an effect on Israel, on all the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, actually on all the Middle East. And I think that we should do whatever can be done to assist His Majesty the King of Jordan and his team. And uh, he's facing many challenges these days. And I believe that, uh, uh, the let's say, the Western world uh, didn't support him enough. And they think that uh, Jordan accepted refugees in amount that uh, uh, no country on earth did during the last 200 years. It's assuming that uh, in the United States you'll have to accept within uh, seven years between 60 and uh, 70 million people to the system. It's impossible to deal with it alone. Yeah. And they had to do it. Yeah. And it has an impact on Jordan and no one, unfortunately, really understood it. Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Do you think at the end of the day he's going to add to Saudi stability or subtract from it? How do you think about the crown prince? As a young person, he had all the capabilities to do the right thing. Running a country, running a state, it's a very complicated thing. And if he'll do, take the right measures and it take the right uh, uh, decisions, I think that they'll bring Saudi Arabia to a much better place uh, because it's a very, very important country in the region. The Palestinian issue. How do you think about where we are, where you are with the Palestinians? And what do you think the right approach is that would be in the best interests of Israeli security? Nowadays, <clears throat> I believe that uh, at the end of the day, two-state solution uh, should be um, the vision of both sides. Is it an option today? I doubt, unfortunately. Uh, and there are many reasons for my doubts. First of all, um, the Palestinians are divided by themselves. So the option today, and it's not an option, it's a three-state solution. And that is totally unacceptable. Uh, uh, because the Hamas in Gaza and uh, uh, Abu Mazen and uh, um, Palestinian authorities in the West Bank uh, are, let's say, um, enemies today. They are not speaking to each other. They are not assisting. The Palestinian authorities are not assisting the Hamas in Gaza. Uh, they are not uh, uh, giving uh, the basic obligations as the leader of the Palestinians uh, to the Hamas. And the Hamas on the other side, uh, it's a terrorist group. And uh, uh, for them, uh, the uh, solution is that the state of Israel will not exist. At least those 
are their declaration, even though they know very well that's rubbish. But uh, for the moment, if we want to start some kind of, uh, uh, um, let's say, uh, discussion, um, I believe that uh, we should deal with one entity on the Palestinian side. And I don't see, unfortunately, I don't see that entity. But my vision and Israel's vision uh, should be that uh, at the end of the day, uh, the solution at the end state going to be two-state solution with uh, um, Israel with safe borders and a Palestinian state that uh, can be a homeland for the Palestinians. Since your retirement from Assad, you've become deeply involved in cybersecurity. You're involved in several Israeli firms and you started your own cybersecurity company. So let me ask you a couple of questions about cyber. How do you see the threat? Do you see it getting better? Uh, do you see it getting worse over time? How do you think about the threat? I believe it's the biggest threat that uh, the free world, our planet, is dealing with these days. I'm using the term, it's, uh, you can compare it to a nuclear um, uh, threat that we used to see during the Cold War days. And I'm calling it a silent, soft and silent nuclear. Mm. Soft and silent. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, there is a misunderstanding of that threat. Because in order to run a conventional war, not talking about nuclear war, uh, you need fortune. One airplane costs millions and millions of dollars. I just read uh, two days ago that the B-52 costs $2.5 billion, mm-hmm. okay? With, uh, let's say, 1% of that budget, I, uh, uh, you can create a mess around the world that uh, one B-52 will never achieve, even with all nuclear bombs on it. And that's the point. There is no understanding and uh, uh, how big is the threat because it's not only threat that's coming from a state every kid on this planet can be a threat so you're going to find it within states you're going to find it uh, within criminal gangs you're going to find it within uh, uh, let's say um, in order to get some gain on uh, economy um, uh, you can steal R&D products and you can beat competitors. So it's everywhere. And there is no understanding. And there is a vision that maybe, the uh, uh, let's say, here in the States, that uh, Washington uh, will solve the problem. That's stupid way of thinking. And I just uh, goes, God forbid, that uh, in a hot summer day, playing with cyber uh, attack pressure on the water pipelines in California will drop to zero. Hmm. Thinking that the federal government uh, will assist to solve the problem, it's not even a dream. So, Tamir, your company, XM Cyber, 
has a very interesting and unique approach to the problem. Can you just very briefly describe what you do? Yeah. We are trying to take care of the hygiene of a company. At the end of the day, I'm in uh, the network, every network uh, is never on, uh, let's say, stable situation. They're making changes all the time. In a small company, in a small bank in Israel, they are making 40,000 changes per year. So you are never on a steady-state situation. And these changes create vulnerabilities. Exactly. Because people are doing mistakes. Those who are working, those brilliant kids that are working within the IT systems of any company are great in their job, but they are, many, they are making mistakes. 90%, between 80 and 90% of the vulnerabilities in every network are created by those who are working in the system and non-deliberately. And to fix it, we thought that that was our prime, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 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 vision while uh, uh, starting our company. And uh, we found out that uh, um, companies are buying and buying and buying uh, solutions against cybersecurity, but not dealing with the mistakes that the people that are building and taking care of the network. And creating and, the most vulnerabilities and, at the end of the day. So you exactly. find those. You find those and you tell them. And that, we recommend and we recommend those who are sitting and uh, watching the network system and responsible for the security of system, uh, which measures to take in order to block those threats and to eliminate, let's say, the mistakes and stupidities that are done by the, our own people from the organization. Tamir, um, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for sharing your views with us and uh, sharing your career with us. Um, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's always an honor to meet you. And, Mike. And, and, and I wish we had two or three hours to talk, actually. Great. Maybe next time. And next time. Okay. Take care. That was Tamir Pardo. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.